With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. For a generation of American soldiers, Marines, sailors, airmen, the war in Vietnam was a nightmarish blur. It was a conflict with no clear goals, waged against a stealthy enemy in the dense jungles and rice paddies of a strange land. All too often, the chaos of battle found Allied forces trapped and facing annihilation in jungle ambushes, firebase assaults, and in bailouts over hostile territory. The desperate situation in Southeast Asia called for courageous men to rise above their fears and carry out some of the deadliest missions in the history of warfare. They were jobs that had to be done. Forward observers, or FOs, moved ahead of the friendly forces and secured vulnerable vantage points on the front line. From their precarious positions, they served a vital function as the eyes of the artillery gunners delivering rounds to enemy targets. Often alone, the forward observers could easily find themselves surrounded and cut off from their unit and at the mercy of a hostile enemy. As a young man, Barney Barnum knew he was destined to pursue a career in the military. But it wasn't until his training in the Marine Corps that he learned what it meant to be a forward observer. For his heroic action as a forward observer, Barnum would receive the Medal of Honor. Well, I, I, I wanted to be a Marine. Uh, my, uh, my cousin was a Marine in World War II, and I can remember uh, him, you know, in uniform. And uh, my dad was... Uh, in the poultry production, so he had a deferment, and then when it came time, everyone was going. He he selected the Marines, and I remember him telling my brother and I uh, years later uh, the reason he selected the Marines is so he'd be the the best trained, so that he could have a better chance of coming home to his two boys and his wife. But then they passed the age law a week before he went to Paris Island, and my dad, the people went through Paris Island with him, ended up landing on Iwo Jima. So I probably would have grown up without a pop. Well, and what was it like going through training? Was artillery always the top of your list? No, I think uh, initially uh, all Marines, uh, you think of uh, being an infantryman. Um, and then I, uh, I uh, there was something about uh, the demonstrations and the, the firepower and uh, of the artillery when I was going through uh, a basic, and um, I was impressed with it. And... Um, so I started uh, considering that, and because it was with the infantry, travel with the infantry. Um, so I, um, you know, that's so long ago, I don't know what really drove me to it, but um, I'm glad I did it. Did you know at the time what a forward observer was or did? No, I don't think I knew about anything, anything uh, other than a Marine as a Marine until I started training and saw the various divisions, communications, supply, aviation, tanks, artillery, 
And, uh, but the whole thing is, you know, no matter what you, what MOS or military occupational specialty that you were selected or, or uh, assigned to, you got to lead Marines. And the challenges of leadership are there where you're leading the mess kit repair platoon or a platoon of infantry. They all have the same, I mean, they're individuals. They're, they're youngsters who, uh, you know, you got to set the mission and, and set the timelines and give them guidance, step back, let them do it, and give them guidance. When you first started um, training to be a forward observer, what was that like? Well, I, I graduated from uh, artillery school and uh, went to, uh, I mean, uh, from basic school, went to artillery school there at Quantico, Virginia. And part of the syllabus of being an artilleryman was, uh, of course, the forward observer training. And in, in artillery, in the officer chain, one of the first jobs you get is, uh, is a forward observer. You're a second lieutenant, and so you're formed up in, a, in an artillery uh, in an artillery battery, and uh, there are four uh, four forward observers supporting the, the four infantry uh, companies in a battalion, and uh, that's usually where a, a second lieutenant starts out, and uh, and it's uh, it's the toughest job in the artillery because you're out with the infantry, you're humping with them, and uh, and and after you've done that for a while, then you usually make first lieutenant, graduate up into executive officer, or fire direction officer, or up on the battalion staff. So uh, most people in the Marine Corps and in the Army and the artillery start out uh, as, as, a, as a forward observer. That's where you get your feet wet. Um, the job of the forward observer uh, with the infantry is, to, uh, is, is the artillery expert or fire support expert with the infantry. Uh, so you, uh, you travel with the, uh, the infantry company or battalion and you're there to advise the commander, whether it be a company commander or a battalion commander, in regards to use of supporting arms. Uh, prior to an operation, you, you, uh, you tell them what's available and how, how you can get it. And uh, sometimes you pre-plan a, uh, a preparation before you go into an area. But uh, a lot of infantry uh, uh, commanders are, are so intense on, on their mission that you really got to be a salesman. You know, I can do this for you. I can do this for you. It's not all high diddle diddle, two up and one back, and you know, and you got to remind the the infantry commander at times that he has this artillery, and don't wait till he's in a hum sandwich, and then say, "Hey, already help me." It's got to be part of the planning process. So I think it's a big sales job with the infantry, and of course you're traveling with them. And and I found uh, when I was out with the infantry, a lot of times uh, the uh, the commander would always say, "Hey, already, where are we?" double-checking his uh, knowledge of map reading because that's one thing with artillery. You, you do get intensive uh, uh, study in map reading so that, you, first of all, you know where you are, and then, and then you pick out your targets in relation to where you are. So, that of course, you, you know, the, if you call in a certain coordinates and those coordinates go to the fire direction center and they plot them on the map, that's where the rounds are going. So if you give them the wrong coordinates, you know, the rounds are going to go where you, the, the coordinates that you send in. And uh, so it's very important to know map reading. And, and after a, um, you've been out with the infantry, you, you gain this respect from the commander that, first of all, uh, you're, you're good at what you do. And, uh, you know, all, all, an infantryman's got to be bailed out once. And he, he's, a, he's a believer. Barnum soon found himself in the midst of the first deadly contact with the North Vietnamese Army. I had been in Vietnam uh, two weeks. I had been with uh, this company, hotel company, uh, one week, 
and was and was out of my first patrol got called back in to load up on a helicopter to go into to Operation Harvest Moon. And four days into that operation, um, when we were ending it up, matter of fact, I hadn't called in any fire missions because we hadn't had, had any contact. But uh, when my uh, company, uh, the battalion, was ambushed, that was the first time I'd ever been shot at, number one. I'd been in Vietnam two weeks. And uh, first time I was ever shot at. And that was the first fire missions in combat that I had called in. And the first thing I did uh, after I got up off the deck and, and sought some cover was to call the artillery and, uh, and, and, and adjusted fire. I think that, uh, first of all, it was, a, it was quite a rude awakening uh, to be thrust into a, and this was a major ambush. Uh, and, uh, but the first thing I did uh, uh, when I looked up from underneath my helmet, and I'm on the deck, I could see all these young, young Marines looking at me saying, okay, Lieutenant, what the hell are we gonna do now? And the first thing I did with my radio operator and scout sergeant was contact the artillery, and we, st and we went into motion, um, and, and, and uh, bringing artillery in. And we were at the end of the gun target line. You know, guns have a certain range, and they were firing into us. So we were really at the end of that, of that range. And uh, so, uh, I couldn't bring the, the, the rounds right where I wanted them on a couple of the positions because uh, they were a little erratic, especially uh, it, it, at the max range, uh, the round stability is, is not. So I backed off my artillery and only fired them uh, from where I was and, look, and the battery. I didn't shoot anything over my head uh, because we took some shrapnel on my position on, on the first couple rounds that came in. And uh, the battery said we were at, uh, at the end of the gun target line. Max range. So you called for fire between the, the artillery and your position? Yeah, because the enemy was, I was in my, the company I was with was the rear element. I had enemy on three sides of me. So I fired on two sides of me. I didn't fire on the, on the right side. But uh, I was given some um, helicopter gunships that I utilized to uh, fire on the, on the right side. And, and, those, and the, uh, the platoon, it was the enemy to my right, that's uh, where I la launched a counterattack while at the same time firing artillery back here. So you had to just sort of, in the middle of mayhem, focus. Yeah, and at the same time, uh, the company commander uh, was mortally wounded, and uh, he died in my arms, and I took over the infantry company. And so I'm uh, now an infantry uh, company commander and the artillery uh, forward observer, so uh, I have my hands full. How many men were you left with? You know, that's 35 years ago, uh, less than 100. About 120, I think, we had at that time in the, in the company. And you were surrounded by? Well, yes, we were, uh, we were the uh, rear-end security of a battalion movement out of the mountains. And when the ambush was triggered, um, uh, the North Vietnamese, uh, this was the first time of, that, that in the Vietnam War, and this was 65, that a unit, a, a regiment, with shoulder patches and uniform and the whole bit uh, we had come in contact with. And, and um, when the ambush was triggered, they were smart. They picked out that company commander of mine, you know, with a map in his hand and a radio operator behind him with that big whip antenna. And the first round that triggered the ambush hit him, killed the radio operator and, and mortally wounded him. And maybe half hour into the battle after I went out and brought him back and he died in my arms, I took over the company. So at that point, uh, 
not only was calling in the artillery, uh, but it was running the, the infantry aspects of the company. And then I was given, as I said, a helicopter gunships because fixed wing was up there, but it was overcast and they couldn't come down. But those, uh, and again, I got to be a Ford air controller uh, by directing the, uh, the uh, helicopter gunships. So, but, uh, you know, it all goes back to uh, um, every Marine is a rifleman first. Every Marine officer is a lieutenant of Marines, uh, infantry, platoon commander, trained at basic school. So all that training came in. And, um, and uh, teamwork. And I was the, as I said to everybody, I went from being a lineman that day to being a quarterback. I called the plays and they executed. And we won the Super Bowl. You got out alive. Yeah, we got out alive. We, they figured we, my company overcame 10 to 1 odds. And we did it as a team. There were no superstars that day. We did it as a team. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, I had to, they did anything I asked them to do, when I asked them. And if someone got shot doing it, then someone else was ready there to do it. And it, it, it just shows that teamwork uh, overcomes. And I'll tell you, you get Marines, when they see their buddies shot up, and they're fired up. You know, when, uh, when you're in combat um, and, and you're directing, you're leading, um, you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about doing your job. And all these young Marines uh, are looking at you, and they're ready to do something, but they're scared. And you got to point them in the right direction, get them moving. And then you don't need a bullwhip on them. You just need some Marines to guide them. And, uh, and be out there in front of them. Uh, you know, it's not go do this, it's follow me. And with that type of leadership, uh, it's very important. I don't think, people ask, you know, were you scared? When I first got, the ambush triggered. I mean, I hit the ground. I was scared. First time I've ever been shot at. And, uh, and you realize real quick that this is for real. And uh, even though all the training I've been in and all the weapons I'd fire and the artillery I'd fired, to be shot at is, is amazing. And then to look around and see people who are bleeding, dying, dead, uh, it's, uh, it makes you realize that uh, all that training. And I think it's just it's like getting on a bicycle. You know, after years, you get on, you ride. You get in the car, you drive. Uh, I'd had the training, and I started doing what... And, and um, in a situation like that, uh, um, support of the, uh, of the young Marine and the great corpsman I had with me, uh, leading by example, standing up and, and uh, doing things, uh, and using common sense. And if something, something didn't work, tried something else. You know, we didn't stop. We never stopped. And I had to make some tough decisions. I had to make some tough decisions. And when I ran one uh, counterattack uh, on, on, to our right flank with a platoon, I had some people shot up. But I knew if I didn't uh, do that, then they were going to get us. And then later on into the battle, uh, uh, later on in the afternoon, we're running low on ammunition. We're cut off 500 meters from the rest of the unit. And the battalion commander says, you've got to come out. We can't come get you. If you don't come out, you're going to be there by yourself tonight. I knew if we were there by ourselves tonight, it was all over. So I made uh, some decisions. First thing I did is had the engineers blow some trees down so I could bring in helicopters to take out the dead and the wounded. And then I had everyone drop their packs in a pile, and we blew them up. And every piece of unusable equipment, we blew it up. 
make ourselves light for the breakout. And then I remember from basic training, you know, fire and maneuver, you know. So I started fire and maneuvering across 500 meters, and I knew that it was going to take forever and we'd never make it. So I got everyone together and said, okay, we're going to go and squad rushes. And uh, we'll set up a base of fire, and, and one squad goes, and they get across the next one. Hi, diddle diddle. And if someone shot, get shot, you pick them up. We're not leaving anybody on the battlefield. That's what happened. Someone got shot, two guys picked them up. And we just did. I never ran so fast in my life. But I was the last one out. And then when I got out, the first thing the battalion commander said to me when I got over there is, uh, do you have everybody? And I says, I'll know very shortly. We made a count, and I did. I had everybody. And the dead and the wounded that didn't get out on the helicopter, we brought with us. And um, they used to say there was a couple supply officers when it was all over were a little upset that I blew up some of their equipment. But, but we blew it up so that the, that the bad guys couldn't uh, capture it and use it. And, uh, and the same with our personal packs. Uh, a lot of guys afterwards were complaining. You know, they had pictures of their wives or their wallet and stuff. And then someone said, hey, but we're alive. Ultimately, Barnum credits his training as a forward observer for giving him the know-how to escape. As, as a forward observer, you learn to control, especially in the Marine Corps, naval gunfire and air. And I'd had that training in, in the Philippines, down at the Bonus Islands. I'd fired naval gunfire and fired air. But uh, adjusting uh, any, any fire support, whether it be a tank uh, or a, a recoilless rifle or whatever, if you can identify a target, communicate with a shooter, uh, give them the urgency and tell them you're ready to control it, then it doesn't make any difference whether it's an aircraft, uh, a bazooka, a recoilless rifle, or artillery, um, and, that's, and that's key. Now, I had, I had the gunships on, on the radio net. They were on the command net, which was, uh, was, was superb. And, and I stood up and, and at times uh, said, fly down my arms. I put my arms pointing at the target where they were coming in from, and they flew down my arms and shot the target. And I did that after I ran out. We had a 3.5 rocket launcher with Willie Peter, and I would mark the target. And I did that myself. I stood up there on the top of the hill and fired at the machine gun nest or the line, and uh, I think mainly because I didn't want to send some kid up there to do it. And I had the radio on my back, so I'm talking to the helicopters, and uh, so I would mark around and then talk them in on it. When I ran out of the Willie Peter round or I had a misfire, I'd stand up there with my arms stretched and said, fly down my arms. And uh, they'd line up on my arms and, and they'd say, I got the, I got the, I see him, I see him, get out of the way. And then they'd come. So uh, it was fire support. And a forward observer is really the, the fire support advisor, controller, executor for the infantry guy. So as I said, it doesn't matter what type it is. That commander wants fire support. Well, I just happen to be the infantry commander and a fire support guy. Um, there's a lot to be done. You get involved in doing it. And in the fog of war, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of noise. And um, you sort of block it out. And you do what's got to be done. As I said, uh, uh, survival's a strong motivator. And when you get these young Marines looking at you, and you know, once you try to, once I tried a couple things and they were successful, these kids do anything for me. And it was funny. The next day after it was all over, we're walking down out of, out of the mountains, and there's four young Marines around me. 
on, you know, one in front, one in back, to the left and the right. And I says uh, to the gunny, I says, gunny, what are these young Marines doing? They said, you saved our life yesterday. I didn't want anything to happen to you today. <laughs> so they knew that, uh, you know, they, uh, they knew what we were in, and, and we came out of it. And we came out of it together. But uh, if you win, uh, we don't need uh, heroes. We just need uh, teamwork and, and mission accomplishment. Uh, and, of course, in combat, you know, the best prepared win, second best prepared lose. There ain't no second place on the battlefield. So the best trained. So the other thing is we've got to do the best thing to support the infantry so they can take the objective with least casualties in the fastest amount of time. And that's what the artillery is all about. There's no sense going up with a bayonet on the end of a rifle if you can sit back and hit them with artillery and then go up and place up the battlefield. And you know, the other thing is with all the sophisticated technology and weapon systems that we have today, the, uh, the linchpin to our success is that Marine or that soldier with a rifle and a bayonet that goes up and pleases up the battlefield. And uh, everything's in support of him. People forget about that. You know, they talk about how glamorous airplanes are and ships out at sea and all of this. But if it wasn't for the infantrymen, we wouldn't have a military. You know? And I remind uh, young lieutenants that if it wasn't for privates and corporals, we wouldn't need lieutenants and captains. You know, uh, people die when you're up against the enemy. Some units uh, seem to be in, in, in more um, uh, combat than others. And, uh, you know, in Vietnam in 65, I was there. Was, uh, we were fighting the, the guerrillas and stuff. Now, I had a, a unit on, in December, uh, a large uh, a regiment, but that was out of the ordinary to be that far south. When I'm back 68 and 69, up north along the DMZ, they were all... The, the, the Viet Cong type thing was gone, and they were North Vietnamese regulars. Uh, well-trained, well-led, well-equipped. So all depends on what type of battle you're in. Um, but yes, we, um, Ford Observer, um, uh, I guess they all look forward to uh, when they make first lieutenant, or they've been in the bush six months, and they come back into the better area. Because it's tough. I mean, you're, out, uh, you're, you're in the line of fire as is the infantry. And I can remember uh, one of my Ford observers, John Tootin, is down in Brunswick, Georgia now, is a very successful uh, architect. Ford observer out there with the infantry one night, and they were surrounded. We were firing illumination, and he kept saying, Skipper, when the lights go out, they come in on us. Well, we got put in a check fire that night because helicopters in the area. So I didn't fire, and, he, and they were coming in on so I had someone up going like this, saying, I don't hear any helicopters, I don't either, and we kept firing. Now, I, you know, put a lot on the line, but my lieutenant was out there being overrun, and when, the, when I stopped firing illumination, then they moved in on him, not only him, but the infantry. So I fired that night. Thank God I didn't shoot a helicopter out of the sky, I guess. But those are the things you do, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a risky business. Anytime you're dealing with ammunition, and guns, you know, uh, if you don't do it right, then there, then there are problems. I mean, they're designed to kill and maim. You just got to make sure that you control it so it's the bad guy that gets killed and maimed. Brian Thacker got his first taste of working with heavy artillery while training in Europe, far from the perils of the combat in Southeast Asia. I was lucky. I was sent to Europe for troop assignment before I went to Vietnam. And in Europe, there were two officers in the firing battery where the normal complement was six. 
So I got to do everything except command the battery. I was motor officer, fire direction officer. We all did forward observing training, all of the lieutenants. That was, you know, if push came to shove, we were, that was what we had to be able to do. So in terms of training, yeah, I'd seen pretty much all of the firing battery um, as, an, as a young lieutenant right out, of, uh, right out of artillery school, right out of college. What was it like calling rounds, even in practice? Because it seems like there's something significantly powerful about saying, I want, you know, shells on this target now. Um, that's part of, part of you, you've got to come to understand that, yeah, what you're playing with can hurt a lot of people if you screw up. Um, and you're given every opportunity to do that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, and I have to say, I had my share of mistakes that, that again, were, when you look back, the, I didn't put one out of safety. Um, I watched one and I had the safety for batteries where I had to stop a, a fire mission from going down because it was unsafe and I didn't think they put it in the impact zone. Um, but yeah, with, with the size of the weapon that we were dealing with, it was, we could take out a football field. And uh, it could be, you know, it could be ours just as easily as anybody else, or it could be a civilian. And uh, it gives you, it, you, part of the, part of the uh, attraction is that power, um, but it has to be used right. And, uh, and that's kind of, again, with the, with the battery that I was in, in in Germany, even though it was training environment, most of the, all of the NCOs had been to Vietnam. About a third of the troops had been to Vietnam and were just finishing out their two-year commitment or three-year commitment or whatever. And they made sure that you, they taught you that it was, you're here to learn, we've got you for six months. Um, everything that they could teach, as long as you had an open mind, open ears, open eyes. Um, and that was part of the, 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 the culture. But it was one of those things that in Germany you had to go far more by the book. And when you'd see somebody cutting a corner and you'd ask about it, and you'd remind them that you're in Europe, and they'd say, oh yeah, gotta go by the book. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it was, but when you have to, this is a corner that you can cut and probably get away with it. Um, and, and there were ways to communicate far more succinctly than what the school solution was. But you have to start with a school solution. You have to start somewhere. I think one of the skills that you're looking for, at least, was my experience, more so in Germany than in Vietnam, was you don't get lost. Um, there's something about the way your brain is constructed, the way I articulate it now, um, is that uh, yeah, I can read a map, uh, I pretty much know where north is, uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and I have a sense of place. And that's a, and a talent or an attribute that I think the, the Army has learned to build on. And from there, they teach you 
you can do this. If you were an infantryman trying to attack, where would you come from? Oh, well, I know how to block that. Um, I know how to make that guy's life difficult. Uh, most of the art, you know, well, there's the, there's the constant banter back and forth between the king of battle and the queen of battle. Um, <laughs> that, that if you've been around the army a lot, um, you start to get, uh, I'm not too sure that uh, they're all that different, uh, you know, and when you strip away all of that stuff. But, uh, but particularly, again, what you're looking for is, is uh, somebody who can read terrain uh, and some computational skill, particularly if you've got to supervise the, the FDC. You've, You've got to be comfortable with your arithmetic, with your math. Um, and yeah, I, I was in college, so it was sort of a natural fit. But soon after his initial training, Brian became a part of the military war machine. There were many times to pause. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, my battery commander sat me down and said, I've got good news and bad news for you. Uh, it's okay, what's, what's the bad news? Well, what's the good news? Give me the good news first. The good news is that you're gonna be safety officer tomorrow. And this is at 5.30, you haven't had supper, you haven't done your homework yet. So it means you were gonna get maybe one beer that night um, before you had to go to bed because you were gonna get up real early the next morning. And it was okay, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? Here are your orders to Vietnam. It's been good to know you. <laughs> And, but I need you to do that safety. Uh, we don't have any trucks or any, any trucks going back to the, to the uh, garrison until t day after tomorrow. So you've got one more day of work to do here. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, do you want 30 days leave? Which was a fairly standard policy on somebody on orders like that. So, of course, you took your 30-day leave, got your orders, went to see whoever you wanted to see, because it might be the last time you see them. And, uh, and then when you get to Seattle-Tacoma Airport, you make the decision to get on the bus and go to Fort Lewis instead of going left and going to Vancouver, Canada in British Columbia. <laughs> but, uh, so it was uh, many opportunities there to say, okay, do I really want to do this? And it's, can I live with myself if I don't? because uh, certainly somebody else is going to have to fill your shoes. And this was when, 70? This was 69, 70. Uh, when I went to Vietnam, was 70. Yeah, because I didn't get out of college till 69. So that's, I mean, we knew a lot about the war at that point. So oh, we, we, knew the we, we knew the wheels were off. We knew we were getting out. We already knew that we had a racial problem and issues. Um, that the armed forces was no different than our regular society. Um, there was an incredible anti-war sentiment in the age group that I was with uh, that was very divisive. Um, and a lot of people just couldn't understand, well, why don't we just get out? Why don't we just leave? Pull the troops out now. Why go? Uh, you know, that's one of those questions we'll be arguing about <laughs> for a long time to come. And it's, uh, 
the answer is you just can't leave uh, and pull out that quickly. Uh, as was pointed out, I mean, I don't claim any credit for it. Um, when you're young like that, one of the things you want to find out, one of the allures of taking a commission is can you lead troops in combat? It's a, a very difficult environment. And do you have what it takes? Um, can you make it? <laughs> and, uh, and that's something that you really don't know. Uh, and it's an opportunity to find out. Uh, and you accept the risks that go with that. Uh, you found out quickly, didn't you? Well, uh, yeah, I was told by the troops in Germany that not to sweat it, I'd make it. I didn't say by how much, but <laughs> it was, don't worry, LT, you'll make it. Um, you know, and that's a question that you have. Um, anybody who accepts a commission, uh, in the beginning in your training, it's, it looks like you can do it. But until you get in front of the troops and have to do it, um, you don't know. And I didn't know. Uh, what happened when you got to Vietnam? I reported for duty, uh, kind of like Europe, the Devardi commander said, well, what battalion needs a lieutenant the most? Um, and when he found out what my experience was in Germany, it was, well, you're going to the 5-5 unit that he had, so you didn't have to relearn the weapon or the firing table, so you just take advantage of what you already knew. And it's go down and see the battalion commander. He'll, he'll assign you from there to whichever company or whatever location. And uh, again, it was not what you expect to find, uh, not at least the way they drew it up in school. That, that artillery battalion was running, what, three batteries, but was running six or seven firing locations. They had lots of platoons in batteries that were separated and just running far more than the three locations that you would expect. And so there was more than ample opportunity to two officers to a platoon. Uh, you had it all. One had to sort of, we just called one an XO and the other a fire direction officer. That, there can only be one battery commander, but I never saw my battery commander after he assigned me to the platoon that I was with. Uh, there were two lieutenants uh, with a platoon supporting combat engineers, and for four months, that's what we did. Although Thacker was trained to work with artillery, he urged his commander to put him on the front lines. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I had asked for an assignment in the headquarters. Um, just said, hey, 
I spent all of my time in a firing battery, but never any time in a battalion setting, in a headquarters setting, in a where the coordination goes on. If you need somebody to fill in for a few weeks, whatever, I'd like an opportunity. And, you know, that's, you make your druthers known and, you know, the dream comes true. Um, and while there, we, uh, we got this three or four suitcases, pieces of equipment that were an observation system. And, you know, the XO called me in and said, Lieutenant, you are going to have a team and it's going to be called the Observ Integrated Observation Team and you're going to get the following people. Because again, with the battalion scattered all over a couple of provinces, I didn't know people. I didn't know what I really needed. Uh, the school, you know, the Swartz Sill had said, this is what you're probably going to need. So yeah, I inherited a bunch of soldiers that, and we had to learn how to make that piece of equipment work. Try to, you know, what, we, what could you do with it, what couldn't you do with it. Uh, we had a week there at the headquarters location to check it out and unpack it and put it together and after a week it's here's a truck go down to another location set up observe uh, and then it was put it in the truck come back to the headquarters you've got to go meet the battalion commander of a sister artillery battalion that needs help and you're going to be detached from our battalion and attached to this other long-range artillery battalion so that you can observe for 175s instead of 155s. Uh, what was the piece of equipment that you unpacked? Um, it was uh, three pieces. Uh, it was a theatolite with a laser for a ranging device, which theoretically you could go out to 30, 30 kilometers. The farthest we could ever get out was about 24, 25 and be accurate within the three or four meters of what you were ranging. Uh, we had a night observation scope that let us, a big starlight scope, one of the 16-inch varieties that allowed you to look at everything at night with just starlight power. Um, and then they had a set of Navy binoculars that they used from cruisers. I forget where they got them. They were 60-pound binoculars. But you could see a long way over six degrees, and they were designed to be for adjusting fire from the Navy, and the Navy didn't need them anymore, so they patched these things on, and you had a huge platform, 800 pounds worth of equipment on a tripod. And once surveyed in, because you were shooting straight line, you could tell a computer where you wanted that round to be within just a few meters. So once you saw a target, your ability to locate it in three dimensions, um, you should be able to put the round very close on first round. If, the, if, the, if everything else worked right, you know, one round and maybe one adjustment and you should be there, ready to fire for effect. And. Uh, with 175s, I could be, I know we were, we were 15 kilometers away from the firing, from the tubes. 
and we could see clearly out to the edge of their range fan and you don't have to be that accurate with 175s. Um, just get them in the grid square um, and they mess things up. But I was one, we were one observation team up on the up on the mountain and there was another piece of equipment down at Ben Head which was right on the border that was doing the same thing and we could observe fairly accurately a, a huge area up on the border. Which border? Cambodia and Laos. Um, you know we were not the forwardmost location there was one other American unit right on the border at the Special Forces camp. Um, but we were pretty close. <laughs> at, uh, close enough. Well, closer than we ever wanted to be, but uh, again, you're sitting up on a mountaintop. Uh, if you've ever been in the mountains or around mountains, uh, you know, my dad was from West Virginia, so when we went home, I knew what it was like to be in the valleys on the hilltops. So being above the clouds was no problem to me. Uh, understood what was going on kind of and again the sense of topography and ter terrain it was oh okay I think I know what's going on here now where could I where could I go without me seeing them from here because there's this ridge line in front of me kind of stuff the um so you were detached and you had this big new fancy piece of equipment yeah that was being prototyped uh well it was being test field tested, um, as far as we knew, we were the first. We were amongst the first units in combat to actually get it. That probably wasn't true, uh, but they wanted to find out how does it work in a particular environment. Um, how can you make it work? How can you improve um, the accuracy of your fire? And again, the the challenge in artillery is target acquisition. Um, until you see it and can identify, know where it is, you can't, your tubes are kind of useless. And so this was a new method of target acquisition because of the laser accuracy? The laser accuracy in particular, yeah. I mean, they, they had computers. They were beginning to use computers to do the computation. Um, and they, there was a function on there for straight line distance. So when somebody had set up the system, they knew that the laser capability was coming along. And, the, and that it was particularly, they were thinking of this type of situation where you've got long-range artillery, you've got a very deep battlefield. Um, how do you observe, how do you accurately identify targets out there? And... Uh, and of course, bring fire to bear. On that first mission, Thacker's unit came face to face with the enemy. What I knew then and what I know now, of course, are two different things. Um, yeah, we were assaulted, uh, what, as I learned out later to be, were um, by two sapper battalions, supported by uh, pretty much a full North Vietnamese infantry division. They had a uh, they used the same organizational names that we do. Um, they weren't quite as big in terms of manpower, but function is mostly the same. Um, you know, they had a uh, the artillery battalion that they had forward supporting their 
sapper battalions was rocket-propelled grenades, but it was a full battalion of them. It wasn't just a battery supporting them. They, they and again, in retrospect, um, when you're on top of a mountain, it's almost an impregnable position. Um, you know, there's only two ways to assault that position, and that's on either ridge line, on either end. And it's a very narrow front, so it's rather easily defended. Um, so when you go after a position like that, you have to go after it with a lot. Um, the attack on that fire base was part of an offensive that the North Vietnamese attacked along a 100-kilometer front that morning. So every position that I had been at received incoming fire, and a lot of those that I hadn't were attacked as well, all within a few minutes of each other. So in the beginning, commanders just have to sort it out. Where's the, where are we just being probed? Is there, where are we really vulnerable? What's, where am I most vulnerable? And it turns out that the fire base that I was on was probably the, the main objective. Um, everything else was diversionary, but spread, spread all the, the resources out. And uh, clearly the North Vietnamese, in my mind, wanted the four pieces of arti Arvin, Arvin artillery that were up there. And they wanted to take that fire base quickly so that they would be able to use whatever ammunition the Arvin had up there against three other fire bases and several villages, because that's what that position did. It could fire support for many locations. Um, you look back and you say, yeah, well, if it was that important, why wasn't it a little bit more heavily defended? Um, you know, that's, that's hindsight. Uh, but so you were out with, with, as a forward observer, or with a forward observing team, with this new piece of equipment on top of the hill, watching this attack as it happened? Oh, if I could have seen the attack, I would have done something about it. I mean, they came out of the shadows at 6.30 in the morning when we were in sunlight and they were in the dark. Um, they came out of rainforest. Uh, they came out beneath where I was looking at dead space. Um, and it wasn't that it's exactly where I would have come from if I had to attack. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that again, it was um, once you got in close to that piece of equipment, you didn't need it to observe. You could do that with traditional methods. It was the same way with the uh, Vietnamese had a four 105 howitzers at that location. Um, once you got within a kilometer of them or got close to them and underneath them, you couldn't shoot. You couldn't get around on them. Uh, they were too close. And that's what the North Vietnamese recognized tactically and were able to get large numbers of people and real close um, to attack that fire base. So you were at the fire base? I was at an Arvin fire base. Yeah, it wasn't an American fire base. It was... Tell, say what Arvin is. Oh, so uh, that was the um, Army of the Republic of Vietnam. They were. It was the South Vietnamese Army. And so what happened as you were over, were you overrun? They tried to. 
Uh, we were never really overrun. Um, their initial attack was able to penetrate the perimeter and force all of the defenders back into a tighter and tighter. We shared the fire bases. Now again, you're talking about something that's not much bigger than the end zone of a football field. Um, <laughs> and, and again, it was they had the manpower to keep pushing, and we didn't have enough reserves to take a counterattack and take back. Um, and they had the ability to resupply. We didn't. The uh, uh, aviation company tried to resupply us once and lost one helicopter, was shot down. They had an anti-aircraft position well established. I could never find the SOB. Um, knew generally where he was and what they were doing, but could never get close enough to him to really suppress. Um, they shot down a second helicopter that was trying to extract the first crew. Uh, so we suddenly had seven extra Americans inside the wire uh, that, again, had they been a, a regular infantry squad with a machine gun and a few other things, uh, you could have thought about spending the night. Uh, we'd rather had a platoon than a squad, but <laughs> to think about that. But, but again, we just, spending the night was not thinkable. We knew that up there, even though I didn't know what we were up against. It was, um, we knew it was an incredibly serious, for our, from our perspective, not just a probe, an attack. Um, so we, you know, gave the Arvin commander enough time to burn his powder and render his guns useless, and about four o'clock in the afternoon, it was time to leave the fire base. And uh, at that point, it was, I need blocking fire. I called for artillery fire on the position um, with nothing more than the intent of giving us time to withdraw and separate from the main attacking force. Um, you know, you get five, ten minutes distance between you, then you have enough time to get an extraction zone set up and get farther up the ridge and, and get out. So you you actually called for fire on your own position? Sure. Mm -hmm. On top of us? On top of it. Well, at that point, most everyone was getting ready to leave. There was no real threat to... Um, the main force that was left because by the time they got ready to shoot they would have had a couple of minutes to get out and get up the ridge line so it was you know on my command if you can or when they changed the variable time fuse and said we'll be there in 30 seconds and then that was all I needed to say yeah well we're out of here the fire base has been evacuated I'm, uh, I was basically the last American off so were you in? You were in command of the. You sort of assumed command of the fire base. Oh no! <laughs> Wasn't that simple? Oh, you've got a. I'm a. I'm a lieutenant with less than two years' experience looking at a. Captain, Vietnamese captain with ten, fifteen years' experience, school trained in America, English command of the English language equivalent to mine or better. Um who was fighting for, for his life and his, his way of life. Uh, I wasn't going to command him at all. 
and wasn't able to tell him much at all as an advisor. I mean, again, that's a misconception or a misnomer. Uh, um, I had some target acquisition capability that he didn't, uh, and I could call for the artillery fire in English, and they knew my voice was an American voice, not somebody who could speak good English. Um, so he, it was his fire base. Uh, there was never any question of that. Uh, and when it was when he was done with his job, it was we can go now. It's okay, um, you know. Put his advisor in the middle with the with the helicopter crews and get somebody out on the point that could knew knew where they were going. It could read a map, and I took the rear. Let's. And we left the fire base as a reasonably coherent unit. Uh, and as you were calling in fire, or you had already called for fire? I had called for the fire. Um, had they given me HE, uh, you know, it would have been there 30 seconds sooner. What's HE? Uh, high explosive, oh. just, just an impact round. What they did was they changed to a fuse that, radar kind of fuse that sensed the ground and gave you an airburst. Um, for what I wanted, far more effective. Um, I didn't call for a, a VT fuse, I just said shoot the position. Um, by that time, the battalion commander was at the fire base and said give him, had him give the variable time. It was, you know, and they didn't think twice about shooting the mission. They were prepared to shoot it and they, they did it as quickly as they could. Was it effective? As far as I'm concerned, it was. Uh, I mean, I have a copy of the fire mission. They shot 38 rounds over 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Um, and they could fire one round, you know, only 13, 14, I forget how many kilometers away it was. It was not a long shot for a 175. And they could keep people from moving up and down that ridge for the hour. Um, what happened next? Well, I didn't stay up with the group. <laughs> but, uh, staying behind to get that final command in, uh, I got separated and, uh, and chose not to stay on the ridge line following them trying to catch up. That a, a two-minute head start was, I, I felt much too vulnerable running by myself. So I got off the ridge line and started just following the the mountain and then quickly realized that was also being stupid that I was not no one was shooting at me I was in a no man's land there was no one there I had just as much chance of making it as stopping and waiting for night and waiting to see what would happen and develop is trying to catch up with um, and maybe miss the extraction completely because once separated, um, you know, they were running as fast as they could. I wasn't going to run much faster, and I had no idea where they were going to stop and stuff like that. So hadn't thought about that. Uh, and uh, quickly decided to ditch my radio, that it was extra weight and something that I didn't... At that point, it was... 
all the radio was doing is drawing attention to myself. Uh, and it became a liability, so again, in retrospect, I probably didn't have to do that. Uh, How heavy was the radio? Oh, it was one of the regular backpack radios, 25 pounds. Uh, you know, and I didn't have a pack to carry it, I just had a, a radio that I had scrounged up from somebody said, here's a radio, you need it, because the initial attack took mine away. Um, so, I mean, again, we were pretty much operating on the fly. At least I was. Everyone was. 25 pounds is still a lot to be humping around when you're trying to stay alive. Well, you know, that's one of those things that I've thought about. This heck, I had the channel. All I had to do was stay on the ridge line, probably, and I would have caught up with them. That it was, you know, 30, 45 minutes later before an extraction was actually executed. And the cooler heads up front obviously got to a location where they could establish a perimeter and helicopters could get in and they could be extracted. Um, I mean, the, I, well, there were seven Americans there that were from the aviation company. There was a lot of motivation to pick them up. <laughs> so whether that would have worked or not, the reality is they were extracted. They were extracted and I wasn't. What happened then? I waited. <laughs> and I found a, a bamboo thicket uh, that was thick enough for me to crawl into, and fortunately nobody else looked in it. Uh, and my thought process at that point was they're not going to leave four artillery tubes on the top of a mountain very long. You can't. It just doesn't make any tactical sense. And I was right, you know, the next day or 24 hours after we left the fire base, just before sunset the next day, um, the South Vietnamese air assaulted back onto the fire base with a battalion of rangers. Um, came with a lot of infantry and a lot of firepower. Um, and were able to retake the fire base fairly easily. Uh, according to the MACV people that went in with them. <laughs> that, uh, but they were surrounded, uh, and it was, a, it was a stalemate, sort of. It was, well, you can, have the, you can have the top of the mountain, but you can't get out. Um, we have anti-aircraft capability, so you can't bring a helicopter in to lift the guns out, because we'll shoot it down. And it's, okay, guys, what are you going to do? And I'm sitting out there less than a kilometer away from the fire base, listening to all of it. You couldn't, didn't stick your head up. But also knew that didn't dare move because there were no, only enemy forces were around it. So it was stay in the bamboo thicket as long as you could until things wore out or settled down and make up your mind when to move later. Were you injured? How did you survive? I was not injured. Uh, I was in a place that was actually very secure. Uh, I mean, we were strafed with gunships. Uh, and it turns out I was right underneath an approach route um, into the fire base. Uh, the North Vietnamese had an anti-aircraft group right around me. Um, <laughs> that, uh, 
and uh, and we knew obviously our side knew that there was an anti-aircraft unit there because they they got hammered every time a, a supply ship came in or something was going on and any kind of helicopter got close you could hear them come you could hear the gunships come first and just do some suppressing fire uh, and it's very difficult to penetrate bamboo it's pretty tough grass what did you have for food and water there wasn't any that uh, again that was when when the attack came in the morning we were forced out of our bunker um, that we were staying in fairly quickly so what you left the bunker with is what you had uh, a hat a night shirt a pair of boots for me because uh, I mean I was that's how I woke up and my initial response was to go outside and take a look around and see what was going on I didn't stop to get properly dressed uh, and put all my gear on <laughs> never got a chance to go back in and get it and how many days were you there? I was out eight days seven or eight days you lose track and what happened? how did you get found or did you find them? well I was at one of those I was at a point to where I can live and survive another week or two here. But I was getting weaker, and I could tell that. And it was, okay, you've got to take the chance of, by that time I knew when the lulls were, when the observers got up, when was it safe to move. And there were windows of opportunity when it was safe to move um, right at dawn. Uh, particularly when it was kind of gray and the clouds were still there. Uh, the North Vietnamese were still having breakfast. Um, <laughs> you know, our observers were having breakfast because of the clouds. It didn't do any good to be on station to fly. Nothing. They could mortar the location to keep everybody, wake them up, but it was really, there were, right at dusk was very similar that you could move then. Um, and so one morning I decided it's time to try to make it back um, to what would be friendly lines. So I climbed back up the mountainside. Uh, took the better part of the morning. Uh, and I realized just how close and how weak I was because I couldn't go very long without losing my breath. Or, But again, there was a, a no man's land in between the location where I was and the fire base. Um, at least I think there was a no man's land there because I was able to to go through it pretty quick and then squeak my way into the into the fire base. Uh, the vocal cords were pretty dry. I had a team of six. Uh, I lost three. One of them still missing. Uh, and then there was a MACV advisor on the location as well. And uh, one of those people are still missing. Um, one of the helicopter crews, the first one in, lost a pilot uh, when it was shot down. Um, from our side on that day, it's what, five? Uh, who knows how many North Vietnamese? Uh, I mean, they took their lumps too.
we hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Dave Barsky. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.